Airports are fascinating. Everybody's either coming home or leaving home. Some people are on work, some people are on vacation, and they're going to hundreds of different locations. You see people from all different backgrounds, all different nationalities. Some people are excited, other people are anxious. Some people have flown hundreds of times, others are getting in a plane for the very first time. Some people are happy because their plane landed 30 minutes early. Other people are completely beside themselves because their flight was delayed five times before it was eventually canceled. And because of this, I find airports to be the most fascinating place to people watch. I love people watching. I don't know if, if anybody else in here enjoys this. But, but, but at airports, you've got that person who's trying to go through security, and they think that they're the exception to the rule, right? They don't need to listen. They're going to keep their shoes on. They're going to keep their belt on. They're going to keep all the, the change in their pockets, and then they act shocked when the, when the security thing goes off, right? They're like, oh, I, I, I didn't know I had this in my pocket. Uh, you, you get through the gate, and, or you get through security. You go to your gate, and you're waiting to board your plane, and uh, it, it's packed. You know, there's 100 people standing around, but there's one guy who thinks he can just take an entire row of chairs for himself. You know, he's got his backpack in this chair, his food in this chair, you know, his suitcase in this chair. He's just sprawled out, just completely unconcerned that there's anybody else waiting to sit down. Or what about the person who, uh, they, they just, they're oblivious that they're in a public place, and so they're just going to have this personal conversation on speakerphone for everybody in the airport to hear. And, and then you're looking, you're like, man, well, why, why are they wearing that? And what, why is that person dressed just like this? You get on the plane, you've got the person who thinks that they can fit their golf clubs in the overhead compartment. And you're like, I'm telling you, man, it's not going to fit up there. You should have checked it. And you never think positive things about someone when you people watch. It's almost always negative or at least something humorous. Judging others comes pretty easy to us. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus moves from personal temptations to interpersonal temptations. He, he moves from warning his disciples about personal temptations, about wealth and worry, to temptations that can surface in their relationship with each other. Jesus begins the passage in Matthew 7, 1. He says, do not judge. Now, if you were to ask a Christian what their favorite verse is, you, you would expect to hear things like John 3, 16, Romans 8, 28, Jeremiah 29, 11, Psalm 23, but if you were to ask the world what their favorite verse is, it would be Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge. In fact, Barna Group president David Kinnaman, in his book, Unchristian, he shared research that shows that 90%, 90% of 16 to 29-year-olds describe Christians as judgmental. We can make the case, and I will in a moment, that some judgments are necessary and good. We can judge that our coffee is too hot to drink. We can judge that this certain relationship is unhealthy for us. But is that what Jesus is talking about when he says, do not judge? What's he mean? And more importantly, how can we live out this teaching? That's what we're going to discover today. We'll begin by reading this passage together, beginning and Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, with your Bibles turned there, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? 
do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In this passage, Jesus calls us to make two choices. The first is in verses 1 through 5, and the second is in verse 6. First, Jesus calls us to choose mercy over judgment. Mercy over judgment. It's important for us to understand what Jesus doesn't mean when he says do not judge, and then what he does mean. Jesus does not prohibit making judgments about what's right and wrong. He does not prohibit us from doing that. He's not saying that we should bury our heads in the sand and and not discern truth from error, okay? That's not what he's saying. In fact, a few verses later, in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 7, Jesus says this, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So Jesus is saying, you're going to look at someone's life and you will be able to make a judgment and assessment by the fruit in their life whether or not they're a ferocious wolf. Scripture affirms over and over our responsibility to make moral evaluations about people and circumstances. What makes this passage we're reading challenging is that this word judge has a wide range of meanings. It can mean to discern, It can mean to judge judiciously. It can mean to be judgmental and to condemn. And in the context of this passage, we can infer what Jesus is saying is don't be judgmental. Don't adopt a critical spirit or a condemning attitude. So what Jesus does mean, he does prohibit having a judgmental or a critical attitude. Jesus is warning us against a pride where we see ourselves better than others. And this is clear by verses 3 through 5. Jesus uses this example of seeing a speck in a brother or a sister's eye compared to a plank in our own eye. Now, Jesus here, as he's done multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount, he's using hyperbole, exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. And it's quite, it's quite humorous. This guy that, that's, that's nitpicking a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye when he's got a beam, a two-by-four, coming out of his eye. Perhaps Jesus is drawing upon his background as a carpenter's son and his experience with woodworking to make a powerful point. And that is, we are generally far more tolerant of our own sin than we are of others. We hold to a double standard. You see, for the most part, The areas that we expect other people to be consistent in are the areas that that we have no no trouble being consistent in ourselves. 
If there's a particular sin that's not very tempting for us, we can't understand why anyone else would struggle with that sin. Now, of course, at the same time, the sins that that really trip us up, the sins that really drag us down, those are the sins that we expect our brothers and sisters to show patience and understanding with us in. Or we take the easy way out and we simply hide those sins and we pray that no one ever finds out. This is what happened in John chapter 8. You remember the story. The religious leaders bring to Jesus a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And they're expecting Jesus to say, yes, according to the law, this woman should be condemned, this, this woman should be stoned. But what does Jesus say? He says, he who was without the first sin cast the first stone. And Jesus gets down and he starts riding down in, in the dust. And one by one, the, the men, they drop their stones, they walk away. Jesus looks up and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Has there been anyone to condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, now go and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. You see, these men, they they were pointing out a sin. They, they, They didn't struggle with this. But Jesus made the point saying, listen, you've got sin in your life. You've got sin in your life. It may be a different type of sin that you struggle with, but it is just as egregious. It is just as much a problem. And so Jesus here, he's not denying that there may be real sins that are present in someone else's life. It is the judgmental attitude that he attacks. So we can examine the lives of others, but we are prohibited from doing it with a critical attitude. You and I, we break this command when we think the worst of others. We break this command when we judge someone's entire life based on its worst moments. We break this command when we only speak to other people about their faults. We break this command when we judge the hidden motives of other people. We break this command when we, be, when we judge others without being mindful that we too will be judged. We break this command when we judge others without considering what we would do in those same circumstances. Comedian Steve Martin, he said, before you criticize a man, walk a mile in his shoes. That way, when you do criticize him, you'll be a mile away and have his shoes. Why does it matter? What's the big deal about judging others? Let me give you a couple of reasons quickly. First, you're not the judge. You're not the judge. God is. To to judge someone assumes a divine prerogative. Final judgment belongs to God alone. You don't know someone else's heart. But even if you did, you would be in no position to judge them unless you lived a sinless life, never needing God's forgiveness. And I don't think anybody in here today is willing to make that claim. You're not the judge. Second, what goes around comes around. What goes around is eventually going to come back around. This is the way that Jesus says it. Verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you are (coughs) harsh and critical with others, eventually it's going to come around and they're going to be harsh and critical to you. If you are merciful to others, eventually you're going to be shown mercy. So do you want to be shown mercy or do you want to be shown 
judgment. Verse 2 is the opposite of Matthew 5, verse 7. You remember the Beatitudes? Jesus said in this same sermon, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What goes around comes around. You see, true followers of Jesus, people who have been impacted by the mercy of God and the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, will show mercy to one another, not judgment. In other words, if we develop a pattern of life where we judge others, what we're showing is that we don't truly belong to the kingdom of heaven. The person who judges others in this way has usurped the place of God because God alone can judge absolutely. He is the only one qualified to judge another person's life. James chapter 4 verse 12 says there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you Who are you to judge your neighbor? I know this about you. You want to be shown mercy and compassion, so give it to others. Choose mercy over judgment. Second, Jesus calls us to choose discernment over ignorance. Discernment over ignorance. Jesus says it this way in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, if verse 6 sounds an awful lot like a proverb, that's because it is. It's a wisdom saying, and it needs some explanation for us to really understand it. In ancient Israel, dogs were not viewed the same way that they are in America today. They weren't domesticated household pets that that you would groom and let sleep on your bed, okay? I love dogs. I'm I'm a dog person, but some people take it way too far. When when they dress their dogs up and, and, you know, they they feed them off, like, plates and all this stuff, like, like it's just gone too far. People that let their dogs lick them all over the face, you know, they'll say things like, you know, the dog's mouth's the cleanest part of its body, yeah, I just saw it licking the dirtiest part, so somebody's, some, something doesn't add up here. In, in ancient Israel, dogs were scavenging wild animals. They, they ran the streets. And, and I know some people in countries in Africa and like Haiti today who are real skittish around dogs because their culture views dogs in much the same way. That they're wild, they're, they're scavenging animals that they attack. And then Jesus talks about pigs. And pigs were rejected by the Jews because they were considered unclean. Jews were forbidden to eat pork because pigs were were wild, scavenging animals. They were dangerous because they would ravage and destroy fields. And so Jesus says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. So that what is sacred and pearls symbolize the message of the kingdom. Pearls is the the good news of the gospel. Something so valuable should not be given to those who have no appreciation for such precious truths. Dogs and pigs represent people who don't value what we have to offer them. If you've ever gone to like the Great Smoky Mountain National Park or you've headed out west to the Rockies and, and some of these places, you'll see signs posted that say, don't feed the bears right? Don't feed the bears. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of animals that they would prefer you not feed. 
deer and squirrels and birds, but they always single out bears because if bears aren't satisfied, they'll turn and tear you to pieces. And the point here is for us to be mindful of people who have rejected the message of the kingdom. If you're talking to someone and their only intent is to mock or to ridicule or insult the gospel, then then that's somebody who's not ready to receive it. That doesn't mean that God won't ever break through that person's heart. But you need to move on to someone who is more open to the gospel. I've heard it described as the difference between green apple and red apple evangelism. Some people are green apples. They're hostile. They're not ready to receive it. Their heart is not soft towards the gospel. But there are other people who are red apples. They're ripe. They're more open. They're more sympathetic to the message of Jesus. Life circumstances have made it such that they're questioning life. Is there a purpose for my life? What am I here for? Is there, is there hope after death, and, and how can I have it? Use discernment. Look for prepared hearts that are ready to receive. That's who you need to pursue. Okay, so on one hand, Jesus says, don't be judgmental. On the other hand, Jesus says, make sure you use discernment. Make wise assessments and evaluations. It's kind of confusing. It seems like he's telling us to do two opposite things. How do we live out both of these at the same time? The key is balance. In the balance of mercy and discernment, we find the path to healthy relationships. We know that balance is important. We want a balanced budget. We want to eat a balanced diet. We want to drive a vehicle that has balanced tires. So how do we find balance in our relationships? Let me give you a few points of application. First, avoid the extremes. Avoid the extreme of hypocritically judging others and being completely undiscerning. Avoid those extreme positions. Because when you become an extremist, you ignore people and ideas that are different from your own. If you only embrace Christians who see things exactly as you do, eventually you'll never embrace anyone. Because you won't find anyone who sees things exactly 100% the way that you do. And I would add that it's also intellectually lazy. Jesus calls us, let me give you an example. He calls us to show both grace and truth. And grace and truth can feel like they're opposite of each other. It's easy to show all grace. It's easy to be all truth. It's easy to just affirm and say, oh, you're great. You overlook sin and grace upon grace upon grace. And it's easy to be all truth. Black and white, right and wrong. This is what it is. Condemning people. It's easy to hold grace and truth and be on opposite ends. You know what's really hard? Love is hard. I've heard it said that love is the tension of grace and truth. Jesus was was love. And he held both of these in tension together. Avoid extremes and find balance in the tension. Second, examine yourself first. 
First, examine yourself. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 5. He says, you hypocrite, first, of your own eye. You can't help others when your spiritual vision is impaired by the plank in your eye. Jesus calls this person a hypocrite because that person can't see their own self-righteous judgmental attitude. To take the plank out of your eye requires you to do the hard work of self-examination. So ask yourself these questions. What sins am I overlooking in my own life? Where am I tempted to hold a double standard? What sins and what people do I judge harshly and critically? And then you pray, God, give me mercy. Forgive my judgmental attitude. Soften my heart to show others mercy and compassion. And only then, after you have first examined yourself, can you third, correct others in humility. Correct others in humility. Jesus says, he continues in verse 5, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It is in Christian community that followers of Jesus have the responsibility to help each other remove the speck of sin from each other's lives. But it first must come from a humble and self-examined life that has first removed the plank of self-righteous judgment. This is how Paul says it in Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Now, for most of us, I think for most of us, we struggle more with having a judgmental attitude than we do with using discernment. And I think Jesus thought that too. Because five verses are dedicated to being judgmental, and one verse is dedicated to being discerning. I think that ratio shows us where the greater danger lies. When we take out that plank of self-righteousness, we see people with different eyes. We see people with new eyes. We see people with the eyes of a doctor, not with the eyes of a judge. Let's suppose that on your way to work each morning, you, you usually stop by Modocs. And you tend to get to the coffee shop at the same time each morning, and you usually see a young woman who gets there around the same time that you do. And on most mornings, you find yourselves standing next to each other in line. In fact, you both order the same thing, a vanilla latte with skim milk. And her appearance is in complete contrast to yours. She has black hair, black clothes, knee-high boots, black fingernails, black lipstick, piercings in her nose, lips, eyebrows, a scattering of tattoos. She's usually wearing a backpack that she has to take off in order to get her money, and sometimes it's hard for her to get the money out of her backpack and pay and get the coffee at the same time. She tends not to make eye contact with others. And you wonder if you should strike up a conversation with her. Maybe offer to hold her backpack while she pays. You're really not sure what to do with her whole gothic style, and you don't know if she'd give you an evil glare and just dismiss you altogether. 
Should you try to be friendly? Maybe find out what brings you both to Modox each morning? See if she's ever tried one of the other specialty drinks? Move toward greeting her each morning? Learn about the other parts of her life? Yes, absolutely. Move into her world. Make a comment one day about how the barista probably already knows both of your orders when you walk in. Offer to hold her backpack as she pays. A couple of days later, introduce yourself, give her your name, and ask her for hers. If she misses a few days, tell her that that you hope she wasn't sick the next time that you see her. Why move into her world? Because with the eyes of a doctor, you see a hurt that God can heal. You see an anger and you see an alienation. Maybe it's because of abuse from a stepfather or a brother or an old boyfriend. But but you see the heaviness. You see the sadness. With the eyes of a doctor, you see a hurt that God can heal. There's a man at work that everybody shakes their head at. He's been divorced a couple of times, and both of his ex-wives are suing him for past child support. He's the very definition of a deadbeat dad. He's way behind on his support. He offers just a little bit, and then every so often. He's been living with another woman and her small child, but a couple of weeks ago, he slapped her around pretty hard. She called the cops, and he spent a couple of nights in jail, and she kicked him out. She now has a restraining order against him. He's currently living in one of those cheap motels that rents out by the month. Every day at lunch, he goes out by himself to get a cheeseburger or a burrito, and it seems like he always comes back with mustard or chili or something on his shirt. Nobody really talks to him very much because he's always quick to complain about how everybody's taking advantage of him and everybody's pushing his buttons and everybody's squeezing him dry, and who wants to listen to that? You've often wondered about being nice and offering to go to lunch with him. From the cups on his desk, it seems like you like the same fast food places he does, Culver's and Taco Bell and Subway. In fact, you go out for a quick lunch almost every day too. Should you invite him to join you one day? Yes, absolutely. Move into his world. Go to lunch with him. When you get to Subway and you both sit down with your sandwich and your chips and your drink, strike up a conversation. Ask him if he follows Major League Baseball. Ask him who his favorite team is and who he thinks is going to make the playoffs this year. Mention to him that that attendance is up this year and the ratings are up and, and you happen to like the pitch clock. Why move into his world? Because with the eyes of a doctor, you see a hurt that God can heal. You see a bitterness at life, failing at relationships, blaming others instead of knowing how to change himself. You sense his fear of the future. No money, a criminal record on the books, a desperation of being all alone in the world. With the eyes of a doctor, you see a hurt that God can heal. Your neighbor is trying to start a co-ed bowling league on Monday nights, and they're looking for a couple of extra people to join. You like bowling. I mean, it's not like you're going to bowl a 300 or anything like that, but you, know, you think you can hold your own, a few strikes, some spares. Your wife keeps telling you you need a hobby, and 
you know that getting to know your neighbor better could be a good thing. The, the league starts next week, and they're pushing for you to join. You're not so sure. I mean, bowling's fun and all, but, but you don't know about playing with some of your neighbor's friends. You know what it's like when they have parties in their backyard. The music gets loud. They drink way too much beer. The conversations get pretty raunchy, especially the way they talk about women. In fact, you make sure that your kids stay inside whenever they're out there because the conversations are just way too inappropriate. And you're wondering to yourself, do I want to deal with that every week? Should you join the team? Yes. Absolutely. Move into their world. Go to the bowling alley. Put on the funny shoes. Get, 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 get the right ball. In fact, go a step further. Get your own ball in the bag and show up so they know that you're all in. You're all about it. When one of the guys rolls the gutter ball, instead of ripping him and making fun of him like everybody else, sit down next to him and ask him about his family. When the single mom shows up one week to play in the league after she finally has a free evening, ask her what sports her son's into. When she mentions that her son wants to play baseball next year, buy a cheap glove for the kid. Arrange it so that, that her son gets on the team that, that you're coaching next year. Why move into their world? Because with the eyes of a doctor, you see a hurt that God can heal. You see that that macho man persona and that raunchiness merely disguises insecurity and failure. You see relationships where there's no love and children that don't have the security of boundaries. You see the single mom's loneliness and vulnerability that puts her at risk of being deeply hurt. With the eyes of a doctor, you see a hurt that God can heal. You see, in life, we can have the eyes of a judge or the eyes of a doctor. The eyes of a judge see a gothic girl, a deadbeat dad, a foul-mouthed neighbor. The eyes of a judge leave us thinking, why would I have anything to do with them? But the eyes of a doctor see a hurt that God can heal. And Jesus says, put down the gavel. You're not a judge. See people with mercy instead of judgment. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see others the way that you see them. God, judging comes so naturally to us. It's easy for us to judge and to point out the flaws and the mistakes of others. and It's easy for us to feel like we're more righteous than others. So, Lord, I pray that, that we would show mercy. God, we want mercy and compassion in our lives. And God, I thank you so much that, that when you saw us, even though you are the only true and righteous judge, you loved us. You gave us a, a way to, to be in relationship with you. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. So God, I pray that we would be people who show mercy, who love deeply even when it's hard, that we would be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.